0: on this episode of The Kinked Wire.
1: I think this is actually a model that can, in fact, be propagated across multiple types of centers as long as that communication is there.
0: Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR's IR quarterly magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, Kinked Wire host Ron Krakow speaks with interventional radiologist Briad Salem about the results of the EPOC trial, and the prospects of Y90 treatment with therospheres for colorectal cancer patients.
2: All right. Well, great. Uh, it's it's really my pleasure to welcome Dr. Riyad Salem here. Really, uh, an icon in interventional radiology, and haven't had you on before. I think uh, all of us here are really interested in talking to you. So, thanks a lot for being here with us.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Well, we could talk about a lot of things, I'm sure, but we're talking about uh, Y90. We're talking about the Epoch trial a little bit, and you know, when we talk about metastatic colon cancer, that's obviously a big thing. I mean, it's a huge problem. We're not talking about, you know, some little niche disease type of thing. Um, and you really have the opportunity, I think, when you're working in that space to move the needle and really positively impact the lives of uh, a lot of people. If, if we can just step back for a minute, though, and can you just sort of describe pre-epoch or sort of, you know, up till now, what the treatment program would be for most patients with metastatic colon cancer?
1: So in general, the patients that we would see in interventional radiology would be those patients that have metastatic disease, so stage four disease with lesions uh that maybe we would be asked to biopsy for example as a as Mm -hmm. a liver or as a lung met and in general the approach for those patients tends to be a combination of resection chemotherapy radiotherapy depending on location of lesion and uh, you start with first line and in general Mm -hmm. when you think about first line chemotherapies for colorectal cancer That's when the patient has their best shot of response, their best shot of downstaging to resection and about a PFS of 10 months or so. And when they progress on that, you go to second line, which which I can talk later on about the genesis of EPOC, but -hmm. you go to second line and that's where things become more challenging because PFS in second line tends to be four, five, six months. So your response rate and your response to chemotherapy drops significantly after you've progressed in the first line.
2: So in other words, if you're, for lack of a better term, if you're not fortunate enough to present with one isolated met in an easily resectable portion of the liver, or if you are and that fails, you're now in this second line, is that sort of a fair way to, the, to characterize it?
1: Yeah, as long as you've, you've had the first line, the full course of the first line chemotherapy, yep. yes, you go to second line, and then the results are not as good in second line, absolutely.
2: And why I think, you know, there's probably so much interest, as we were saying at the outset, that this is a huge problem with, you know, affecting quite a, a number of patients. So what is your approach now, particularly now if we start to roll EPOC into this, for these patients who are now at second line? And you mentioned that, you know, they're, they're facing somewhat staggering odds. How do we tip the scales a little bit with EPOC?
1: That's a great question, and and one of the guiding principles that I think about when I think about metastatic colorectal cancer is that, ultimately, the medical oncologist has sort of a fixed number of therapies that they have at their disposal, and you want to try to have the patient exposed to all of these therapies, if possible, that's the, the concept of the continuum of care for colorectal cancer, And if Mm -hmm. the more you're exposed to, of course, you're doing better and then you can benefit from all of these therapies. And so with that in mind, because there are only limited number of therapies, the principle of EPOC was to insert Y90 in the second line setting, a setting where, like I said, PFS is worse now, like half, if not less than first line PFS, and extend that PFS to prolong the time at which that second line therapy needs to be initiated and Mm -hmm. more extend the time of that second line pfs so again because there are few treatments and the more you go the fewer options you have and so we just wanted to extend that period to provide you know a delay in the need for other therapies
2: and again, you know, you're, you're talking potentially about a fairly large cohort of patients, many of whom are, you know, or can be younger patients, more in the prime of their lives. So giving them more tools in, in, in the toolbox is a great thing, even though, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, we're, we're certainly not talking about adding decades of PFS, for example, but, but nevertheless, anything is helpful.
1: Well, in, in this space, you know, we, we measure successes in months. And all new therapies, systemic therapies, et cetera, move the needle forward in the magnitude of months. That's exactly what EPOC did, is to move that needle forward in months and, again, provide a patient an alternate type of approach to allow them to be exposed to other therapies down the line.
2: Exactly and I think that's part of it if you're a patient facing this you may look at the results of the study and say wow you know that's that's only a few months but you're exactly right you don't know what else will arise during those few months
1: Yeah, Warren. And I want to highlight one of the things, you know, one of the things that, again, to relate to my my colleagues in interventional radiology is, you know, we are very used to looking at medians and just quoting that one. But as we know, the median is the 50th percentile. And the reality is, you know, a KM curve is analyzed through the hazard ratio, not the median. And the hazard ratio for the PFS was 0.69 and the hazard ratio for HPFS was 0.59 which translates to a 31% and a 41% risk reduction of progression for each of these parameters. So the, the data, in my opinion, are much more compelling than just looking at the median. It's really the hazard ratio.
2: That's really a good point to raise. And, you know, as you said, with the, with the median, you're going to have somebody who does actually do quite well and may go years, and, and of course, that would be balanced out by those that Don't go quite as long, but. And, And the magnitude, Warren, the
1: magnitude of the hazard ratio improvement in this case is right in line with other systemic therapies that have been positive and published in prominent journals. And so the magnitude of the effect is just in line with other types of compelling therapies that have become standard of care treatments for patients with colorectal cancer.
2: That's terrific. Is that sort of why you pick those endpoints for the trial itself and in, in terms of PFS? Is that sort of somewhat standard in, in the oncology world?
1: That's a great question. So the quick answer is yes, it is standard in the second line setting to pick an imaging endpoint because at progression and post-progression, patients will be exposed to all types of other treatments which will confound the overall survival assessment. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so 10 years ago, when we designed this trial, you know, we obviously had advisory boards with oncologists and radiotherapists and IRs, et cetera. And effectively, unanimously, everybody said, yes, in the second line setting, PFS is the correct endpoint, and that's what we did. And overall survival is a secondary sort of uh, observational endpoint, and a a little too much has been made of the negative secondary OS outcome of EPOC, but that's the reality. If you look at the data, 50% of the patients received alternate treatments, which is correct, it's morally and ethically correct. Mm -hmm. But also 13 percent of the patients in the control arm the non-therosphere arm got therosphere so by applying the intention to treat analysis you sort of have to count them as if they never got therosphere but 13 percent did get therosphere so again it muddies up the overall survival analysis
2: it does and probably complicates your discussion with patients in terms of consenting and so on and explaining to them the real benefit of you know going through this
1: yes absolutely warren It, it can complicate the issue And while most patients are very well read on the topic and ask very good questions, the reality is in my practice, very few patients obsess over the overall survival number. What they wanna know are quality of life. How will I tolerate this treatment? And what is the benefit? And for me, when I think about EPOC, the benefit is threefold. Yes, we now have level one evidence, the first positive IO trial of this scale to be positive and meet its endpoints. Yes, we have a positive trial, but for me, it's a bigger point that I make with this study, which is this is great therapy now in the salvage setting. If somebody Mm -hmm. has exhausted chemotherapies, but is doing well, you can consider Y90. If somebody needs a chemotherapy holiday, which everybody wants Mm -hmm. after their end of the first line and starting a second line, people are exhausted. They want something else. This is something that will prolong and slow down disease progression, allowing you to rest a little bit. And then potentially start another line of chemotherapy later on. And the third place where I think this is very interesting is now that we show that we can control disease, we slow down progression. It would be very interesting, in my opinion, to now study Y90 against portal vein embolization
2: Uh in patients
1: pre-resection because 30 or 40 percent of PVE patients never get to the OR because of progression.
2: That's a great point. I read your recent paper on that concept. I remember doing portal vein embolization. And the concept is great. But now sort of adding that being able to hypertrophy part of the liver while hopefully or at least theoretically keeping progression under control really does potentially add a lot of benefit.
1: Yeah. I think PVE fails for a couple of reasons. One is it's a good tool. It's the only tool we've had. We get one follow-up scan, right? So, and then it doesn't treat disease. So you have progression. And so what Y90 would do in that setting is it treats the tumor. So slows down progression. That's one of the reasons you don't get resected. It embeds a biologic test of time, which I think is good for patients because if we resect too quickly, we don't weed out the bad biology patients. And that's why recurrence rates are high. And you have treatment response, a biologic test of time, and you've hypertrophied the left side. So it sort of improves on what PVE does in a more controlled setting and also, again, delays progression, the very reason why PVE often fails in the long term.
2: I wanted to to sort of jump a little bit and just seize on something that you've been mentioning along the way and and form this into a concept. I've heard you talk about this in the past in other settings, but you've mentioned medical oncologists, obviously, interventional radiologists, you've mentioned surgical oncologists. This approach, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of pre-assumes a dynamic team approach. Is that fair? You mean to to treat colorectal cancer patients Mm -hmm. with Y90? Correct.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, obviously, I'm a big proponent of a multidisciplinary approach in all conditions of IR, to be honest with you, not just oncology, Mm -hmm. multidisciplinary. The oncologists have to be aware of what's going on in discussion with the patient. Surgeons, for example, if you're trying to hypertrophy a segment of liver, and of course, interventional radiology, and it is a dynamic process with continual exchange of information and data to make sure that we're doing the best thing for the patient.
2: So how does that work, for example, like Northwestern? I mean, is that like a tumor board type of setting uh, or is there a a clinic with the, you know, you see different providers?
1: So for our HCC, for example, we have our clinic uh, that we see in conjunction with hepatology and transplant surgery and oncology on Mondays. But for colorectal cancer, most of those are discussed at our tumor board. This is because we offer other things as well, SBRT, Mm -hmm. some work with proton, chemotherapy infusion is being done in some colorectal cancer patients, and of course, Y90. So this is all discussed at our tumor board. I'll I'll be honest with you, prior to EPOC, uh, there had been a loss of enthusiasm for Y90 in the CRC space. In the second line setting now, I think this is an opportunity to re-engage our colleagues and to really demonstrate the role of this therapy in this patient population.
2: And so if you're in a more, I don't know, community hospital type of setting and you're, you know, a highly skilled interventional radiologist who's truly capable of doing the technical aspects of this, is that an appropriate setting to consider starting a program like this?
1: In a community setting, that you were working by yourself without oncology. And, well, and oncology exactly. Or, yeah,
2: I guess that's what I'm getting at.
1: Well, uh, I, I don't want to uh, imply that this kind of therapy can only be done at you know large academic centers. Right. In fact, much of the work that I've done is to make sure that anything that that we do is easily translatable and okay. reproducible. And frankly, now that Y90 can be done in the outpatient setting, as long as you have a constant line of communication with the medical oncologist and the surgeon, for example, uh, there's no reason why you can't do these in outpatient centers, for example, as long as, again, that communication. It's the loss of the communication when you're doing things in isolation without talking to your oncologist, without knowing that the patient had chemotherapy the day before, without knowing that they have all these other adverse events this is where the problems come in. But no, I would never presume that highly trained interventionalists working in a setting that is non-academic couldn't do this. In fact, you know, with this generation of trainees, they're all superbly trained and they're all able to do Y90. So I think this is actually a model that can, in fact, be propagated across multiple types of centers as long as that communication is there. And the ability to relay this information is agnostic to location. You don't need to be in a big academic center to make sure you're talking to your med surgeon etc that can be done anywhere
2: that's a really exciting answer and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that because sometimes i think there's a perception that maybe people are intimidated because they feel they don't have the support of that team if they're not in a large academic <laughs> setting And what you say makes 100% complete sense and really, I think, is the same as any other sort of set of procedures you'd want to do as an interventional radiologist, that you want to be tied into your clinical referring practices. You want to have, as you said, constant communication. And I think that really should hopefully be able to light a fire in a way under some of our colleagues who might, like me, have felt a little intimidated about setting up a program like this, either in an outpatient setting or, you know, in a community hospital setting. You know, as long as you maintain those, those close lines of communication it sounds like from what you're saying you can really get a a great program going and offer this benefit to so many more patients
1: i agree with that completely warren and and that that was sort of part of the genesis of the work that i did last year to also get y90 glass microsphere's full fda approval right thereby releasing the, the necessity of the hde and the irb Right. And now this has simplified things. So I think my actions support, you know, what I've just said, which is, you know, I'd like this to be something that people can do properly, safely, well-trained and at good centers. And again, good centers are definitely not just the academic centers, they're everywhere. I mean, the training level now of my colleagues is superb and many people are doing, you know, groundbreaking things at these community centers
2: you look at the genesis of almost any medical procedure, I mean, I think when I was in medical school, cabbages were really only done in academic centers. That's yeah. not the case, you know, yeah. and we would want things to be disseminated across, you know, Absolutely. so that- I can't manage all of the colorectal cancer. The liver metastases in the country, I- I've- I've
1: <laughs> it's got to right. be shared. Everybody's trained. We've written papers on technique and ways to mitigate adverse events. All that stuff's been done. And that work that I've done over 20 years has been with that in mind, that everybody can do this and the technical aspects are hyper-described and hyper-published. So everyone knows how to do it. And I think this is basically what we've, we're observing now.
2: Terrific. So to reiterate, too, because I wanted to return to this, um, relatively recently, we've got FDA approvals. Is that correct? Yes. So that, that was also a barrier, I think, you know, not so long ago.
1: So at least for the glass microspheres, it was a barrier because it had an HDE designation, which means that it was an FDA-approved device, but under supervision of an IRB, which was an impediment to adoption. Mm-hmm. But now recently, I think it was in April or so, after a several-year project that I collaborated with Boston Scientific on and the FDA, we generated data that was compelling enough to get full FDA approval. And I think this is the first device to have full PMA approval, not a 510K, but a full PMA approval. And now, because of the full FDA approval, physicians can now practice medicine and use the device as they see fit, and that has significantly decreased barriers to adoption.
2: That's terrific. Terrific. So really, it sounds like the doors are are wide open for you know the well trained interventional radiologist who, if you can build those lines of communication uh, with your community and such, it sounds like it's a, a great thing to go forward with. You mentioned something too about technique in the trial itself. Did you have specific criteria in terms of you know how you would embolize in terms of whether you would do low bar or by low bar? I mean, did you have different constraints and things like that? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a great question. So so one of the things that we did have to do for the study because we did ultimately have 95. 95- Centers participate in this trial was we needed to make sure that the technical aspects were covered. And so we had, of course, a guiding principles document as to how to do this, how to inject, where to inject, how to do dosimetry And one of the things that we had to do as part of the study ward, which is not necessarily what we do now as part of normal clinical care, is whole liver. And by whole liver I mean by lobar, lobar, which means inject the right, inject the left in one setting. Mm-hmm. And that's because what we couldn't have happened. When we, when we have with an imaging endpoint of PFS, is to have simultaneously observed treated and untreated disease. Which are you counting? Which are you looking for? If you didn't report the untreated disease, there would be a bias there. If you added them together, there's also a different bias because part is untreated, so it's not accurate. So for the study, because of the imaging endpoint, we implemented a whole liver treatment paradigm. And mm-hmm. this way the clock starts with everybody at the same time, all of the is treated, and then you can do response, PFS, TTP, et cetera. So we had to adopt that. Now in normal clinical practice off trial, you know, that's never been my recommendation to do whole liver Y90. It's always been do the dominant lobe, wait to see how the patient does, and then do the other lobe. And today that is still how I do it. It's low bar, it's not whole liver, but for the principles of the study to make sure that it was at the highest level, And we could maximize the likelihood of showing a positive endpoint and a positive trial, if it was going to be, was by doing whole liver. And that's what we did. Now, I think that caused a couple of self-inflicted adverse events in terms of liver failure, just a couple, but it's self-inflicted. And it's because of the clinical trial design. And by no means is anyone recommending whole liver treatment now, nor have we as part of clinical care. And by doing right lobe, left lobe now separately, separated by six, eight weeks, you eliminate those adverse events from the trial.
2: That's a great point. And I think, again, another great take-home message, at least tech, you know, from a technique or technical standpoint for folks who are trying to start this off to consider. And I, I like that phrasing, self-inflicted wound, but you sort of had to, it sounds yes.
1: like. Yes, like, we yeah. had to for the clinical trial design. That's correct.
2: Right. So, wow. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. You know, we'd love to have you come back and, and talk more about this, as well as probably, I don't know, about 250 other things. Um, time is always the enemy, as, as you well know. As we wind down, we do ask probably the, the hardest question now, uh, which we ask to everybody uh, we've been asking this year. If you were not an interventional radiologist, what would you be instead?
1: <laughs> that is a hard question. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, it'd probably be a magician or uh, public service of some form, politician, uh, working in public service. I'm quite interested in that. And uh, that's probably be where I would be.
2: That's really interesting. So some would argue maybe you are a magician probably. Okay. Some of your-
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've sort of taken that up a little bit in the last uh, several years. You know, I have kids and so it always goes well with them. You know, the best are the card tricks that are supremely elegant in their simplicity. But just create wow effects with with everybody, and so that's been sort of some of the things that I've been focused on, but also public service is something that that means a lot to me. I've had some family members in that, and I've seen that growing mm. up, and so you know maybe politics doesn't sound the best, but it's really public service and uh you know ways to affect affect and implement policy
2: first of all, I think that's really fascinating we'll We'll look out for something exciting at s i r this year if you know if you' you're gonna saw someone in half or something, but uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'm but, doing that yeah <laughs> but uh. But thinking about it, I mean, I think you and a lot, of you know, a lot of IRs actually probably have some of those qualities. We kind of do, quote unquote, magical things for our patients and for our referring toxing. You do have to sort of have that public service and almost sort of political sensibility to yourself when you're negotiating those those rough rapids that can exist sometimes in the, you know, in the clinical world. So uh, I I don't know. It makes a lot of sense to me, actually.
1: <laughs> and when you are doing that, Warren, you know, it's important, you know, when you are negotiating and talking about these sorts of things that you got to be thinking six, seven, eight steps ahead and and what Mm. is coming down, not just, you know, the immediate future. And I think that's what makes you successful is when you can think, you know, that far ahead. And I think that's a skill that you acquire as as you age, as you mature, and as you have experience with these sorts of things.
0: Agreed.
2: Well, listen, this has been absolutely fascinating. I really appreciate it and hope to have you back
0: real soon. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That was Dr. Riyad Salem describing the methods of the EPOC trial and what its results mean for colorectal cancer patients and for the care that interventional radiologists can provide. You can read another interview with Dr. Salem in the winter 2022 issue of IR Quarterly Magazine. We thank Dr. Salem for his time and you for listening to The King's Wire. Our host is Dr. Warren Krakow. Our editor is Dr. Damon Shaw. Our manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, Drop us a line at irq